Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Um, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 38 to 42, but I'm going to read for us from verse 20 just for the sake of context again. Um, so we're skipping over divorce and oaths this morning. Um, if you want to listen to uh, what I or what the Bible says about divorce, you can listen to my sermon in the Gospel of Mark where I preached on divorce there. But we're going to jump over divorce and oaths and look at verses 38 to 42 about retaliation or vengeance. But I'm going to start reading for us from verse 20. Here's Jesus speaking again. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would, uh, would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. It is hard. It is demanding. It is piercing. And yet it is your call for your people to live according to your kingdom ethics. To live according to your 
ways that we, as your people, would be the virtuous, holy, flourishing, God-fearing, God-honoring people that Jesus expects of his disciples. And so help us now as we look at these very difficult words. Give us understanding and give us hearts to receive and give us a desire to live according to your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you remember um, from the first sermon that I preached, um, when I gave the the bird's eye view of the Sermon on the Mount, I had mentioned that here in chapters 5, 17 to 48, where Jesus articulates this righteousness that is greater than the Pharisees, that what Jesus is actually doing here is he's not undermining the teachings of the Old Testament. In other words, Jesus isn't proposing a virtuous way of living that somehow contradicts what was taught in the Old Testament. Rather, he is interpreting, properly interpreting the law, unlike the Pharisees, and in a sense, giving the law its full meaning in light of the coming of Christ's kingdom. But with these last two examples in verses 38 to 47, the the, uh, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and love your neighbors but hate your enemies, here at first glance, it seems that Jesus is presenting an antithetical position to the Old Testament. It seems like what he's teaching is contradicting that of the Old Testament. But if we look more closely and really hone down what it is that Jesus is accomplishing, um, I think even here, Jesus isn't undermining the teachings of the Old Testament, but rather he's interpreting and giving the fullness of what the law means. Remember, over the last several Sundays, I have sought to demonstrate that this righteousness that Jesus articulates is more than just mere external behavior. It's a righteousness that addresses the heart of a person. You may have never acted out in adultery. But if your heart is consumed with lust, then you're an adulterer in your inner being. Jesus is taking the Old Testament commands to a certain degree, and he's pushing or expanding the understanding of the command, as Pennington puts it, to its true and deeper inner person sense. And I think Jesus is doing the same thing here in verses 38 to 42. Though on the surface it seems like he's contradicting the Old Testament teaching. And so this morning, we're going to approach these verses um, following the same structure from the sermon that I did on murder and anger. Remember, in this whole section, Jesus is articulating this righteousness in relation to, to Torah or to the law. And each example Jesus gives follows a similar structure. So you, you have the, the Torah statement, right? And that begins with, you have heard that it was said. And then you have Jesus' explanation of the true intentions of that statement, but I say to you. And then you have the practical application. He gives illustrations to capture for us what he means. And so first, let's look at the Torah statement. You see the Torah statement there in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
Now, this statement can be found in several places in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. For example, in Exodus 21, 22 to 24, we read this. When men strive together, that is, when men are fighting, and they hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fine, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. So this is kind of a court here. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, an eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Then also in Leviticus 24, 17 to 20, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. And then there's one other reference in Deuteronomy 19.21, which I won't read this morning. Now, when we modern-day folk see this statement, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we tend to think that it's harsh and even violent. It seems cruel. It seems negative. When in actuality, the command is meant to be positive. The rule or the principle here was designed or created to prevent two wrongs. It was to prevent severe retribution that didn't fit the crime and self-appointed vigilante behavior. We know this from reading the Bible, human history, and our own human experience. When someone wrongs us, that is us as in the human beings, when someone wrongs us, our natural response is not to commit the same wrong back, but to make it more severe. You murdered my mom. I'm going to kill your mom and your dad and your wife. You took out my eye. I'm going to take out both your eyes. That's the natural inclination of the fallen human heart. And we see this working out in normal, regular life all the time. If someone belittles us, we're going to make sure they're belittled to another level. We see this in every area of life, even in something as insignificant as sports. Like, growing up playing sports, if someone beat me in a game of one-on-one basketball, let's say 11-9, and they start to rub it in, You can sure as bet that the next game, my goal wasn't just to beat them, my goal was to humiliate them in such a way that they knew that when they beat me, it had to do more with me than with them. That's what we do as fallen humans. You see, this command, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was actually to protect against an original offense or crime spiraling into more violence, immorality, and instability. And this principle has governed to some degree the history of Western civilization, though I would suggest that it's being somewhat lost today. This instruction in the Old Testament was given in the context of judicial law, and this is how society has used it ever since. 
It was the means by which the judges would uphold justice. We actually need this teaching for the good of society. This command is good for society because it's supposed to help prevent violence and uphold justice. It's supposed to, in some ways, prevent people from taking justice into their own hands. Which is precisely what I think the Pharisees began doing with this law. They removed it from its judicial setting and applied it to their daily personal lives, which allowed them to be vengeful. Now, this command can be undermined in two ways. One, it can be undermined by exacting a punishment, a severe punishment that doesn't fit the crime. So, for example, a a dude steals a purse and he gets 50 years in prison. That's just an example. That would be unjust. It doesn't fit the crime. It's severe retribution. But it can also be undermined by the punishment being too lenient. So, for example, Paul Bernardo, who kidnapped several women, sexually abused and tortured them, and then murdered them, due to Canadian law, sits in a Canadian prison. I don't think that's justice. This might sound controversial, but I don't think it is. He should have got the death penalty. To get rid of the death penalty is to not value innocent life. I'll let you think about that. See, when we come to these words, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, we assume Jesus is speaking of these words in a negative sense, but he's not. Jesus is not out to undermine the Old Testament. It will only appear so if we view this command negatively or if we see this command uh, in which we must exact retribution always. No, no. This command isn't negative. It's positive. It's ultimately good for society. You can't have a just society without it. So Jesus here isn't contradicting it. So what is he doing then? Well, this leads to Jesus' explanation of the true intentions of the law. And here we see Jesus' apparent radical statement in verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. What a statement. What a statement. Now, at first glance, it does seem that Jesus is undermining the Old Testament instruction. But that's not what's happening. He's rather speaking in hyperbolic language, just like he did with lust, right? Tear out your eye, to once again shock his hearers and to help them to see what the law is truly about. He's using shocking language to not just make us think, but also to feel. I feel something when I hear the words, do not resist an evil person. I don't like it. He's intentionally getting to the heart. He's not contradicting the command, but rather he, as Pennington says, offers the true and heart-level virtue that corresponds precisely with this command. As lust is to adultery and anger to murder, Jesus speaks to the heart matter. What's the heart matter? It's this. Do not be a vengeful, vigilante, self-justified distributor of justice. 
There is a righteousness greater and more beautiful than self-justice. Letting God be the judge and righteousness maker, the one who puts the world to right. See, I think King David um, is an excellent example of this when Saul was seeking his life. And David had several opportunities to take Saul's life from him. But he said to Saul in 1 Samuel 24, 12, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. Isn't that incredible? Last week we saw David's horrible example. Here we see David's incredible example of self-restraint where he could have sought vengeance against Saul and killed him on several occasions, but he refused to take vengeance into his own hands. See, it's essential here that we understand that Jesus isn't speaking literally, nor is he making a moral absolute. He's not saying that you absolutely must not resist an evil person under all circumstances. That would be utterly absurd, and I would also suggest, in certain contexts, even immoral. A literal interpretation misses the point that Jesus is trying to make. Remember, Jesus isn't presenting a list of do's and don'ts in the Sermon on the Mount. Rather, he's presenting a way of life in which the disposition of our hearts leads to virtuous living in the many complex circumstances Uh, complex circumstances we find ourselves in. See, here's what I think he's getting at. If we came to him with our objections to this, Jesus, what do you mean? What do you mean we don't resist an evil person? The Old Testament said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Here's how I think he would respond to us. Yes, I know that God has said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but understand That was given to prevent vengeance and corrupt forms of justice. But what I'm telling you is that the disposition of your heart when an evil person wrongs you should not be vengeance, but mercy. The disposition of your heart towards an evil person is so merciful that you would rather suffer wrong then inflict suffering upon them. It doesn't mean that there might not be a situation where you would inflict suffering, but you would rather, rather suffer than inflict suffering on the person who has wronged you. The disposition of your heart is one of mercy towards the evil person who has wronged you. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And that is a hard calling. Now, after Jesus explains the true intentions of the law, he then provides four practical illustrations to capture what he means. And remember, these are not moral absolutes. These are extreme examples to convey what kind of people we ought to be. So here are the four practical illustrations rooted in the culture at the time to demonstrate in some sense what he means by do not resist the one who is evil. So look at verse 39 again. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Here's the first illustration. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
Instead of slapping him back, give your other cheek to him. Second illustration, verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Third illustration. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. There has to be a level of self-denial here, as you can see. Fourth illustration. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So turn the other cheek, give one's shirt and coat away, go the extra mile when you're forced, and give to the one who asks. These are the four examples. And let's be clear. Jesus isn't suggesting that in all and every circumstance, this is what you're supposed to do. For example, your moral duty is not to turn the other cheek when you're attempting to rescue a child from abuse. That would be absurd. Or if, let's say, a homeless man approached you and said, give me your car. Jesus isn't saying you must give your car to him no matter what. For one, he could be under the influence. He might not have his license. So to take Jesus' words as moral absolutes or literally could actually put you in situations where you've actually caused harm. That's not what Jesus is trying to do here. All four of these examples have their origin, origin in first century Judaism. But when you put them all together, the point is clear and applicable whether you lived in ancient Rome under Roman oppression or whether you live in 2022 in the city of Toronto. And here's the point. Sometimes the virtuous or righteous thing to do in a given situation is to actually be wrong. Or as Pennington puts it, often the right thing to do is to be wronged by another. Often the just thing to do is to not seek one's own justice. Or Jesus is calling us, as Allison says, for an unselfish temperament, for naked humility, and a will to suffer the loss of one's personal rights. You see, if you always feel the need to correct a wrong. If you always feel the need to correct a wrong, I think you lack a Christ-like spirit. In fact, I think you lack the spirit of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. See, how do you respond when someone in your workplace gossips about you. Or when your boss makes demands of you that are completely unreasonable. Are you raging with anger, looking for an opportunity to get back at them, demanding they be punished for their offense? Or are you going the extra mile for your boss? Are you allowing love to cover a multitude of sins? Or how about when a friend hurts or betrays you? Or how about when someone says something disrespectful to you over social media? Or how about in your own family dynamics? 
When your spouse says something belittling and snarky, do you lash back and belittle them in return? Or when your brother or sister hurts you, do you lash out and hurt them back? Or what about our relationships with one another in the church? Do you always feel the need to be correcting your brother's and sister's faults, or do you have mercy for them? When a brother or sister in the Lord fails you, wrongs you, is there a place for you to simply show mercy, absorb the wrong, or does it always need to be fixed and corrected? In a sense, I think Jesus is saying this, under certain circumstances, are you willing to be walked over? Are you willing to be walked over? Now, if you hear that in your gut responses, that's a sign of weakness. It may be if what's driving you is cowardice. But what if it's mercy and compassion that's driving you and allowing you to be walked over? I want you to think about how hard it is in a given situation to not react in vengeance. I want you to think about the kind of character, virtue that one needs to have in order to not return an eye for an eye. What kind of person do you have to be that would allow someone to wrong you and not to seek to wrong them back? Well, you definitely need humility, compassion, self-control. Self-control would be a big one. Mercy, gentleness, kindness, love. In other words, you would need a character that is extremely difficult to cultivate in one's life. You see, the martyrs of our faith were not weak because they didn't fight back. It was precisely them not fighting back that demonstrated their strength. See, I think the spirit of what Jesus is saying here is captured so well, so well in the passage from 1 Corinthians 6, which I briefly mentioned two weeks ago. Paul confronts the believers in Corinth because they're taking each other to the pagan courts. They've wronged each other and they feel the moral necessity to take their own blood-bought brothers and sisters in the Lord to pagan courts to settle their disputes. And Paul rebukes them and he says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? You're taking a brother to court and holding up an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And then here's the key. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. That's the question. 
That's what Jesus is getting at here in Matthew 5. Why not suffer the wrong at the hands of the evil person? Why not rather be defrauded by a friend? Why not allow love to cover a multitude of sins? Why not show mercy? If you remember, I began this series on the Sermon on the Mount primarily thinking about what does it mean to live faithfully as followers of Jesus while in the midst of Babylon? And I want to ask this morning why this teaching by Jesus here is applicable for us while living in a society that breathes the spirit of Babylon. And simply put, it's this. Babylon is obsessed with vengeance and getting back at others. Our society is becoming consumed with notions of justice, which, if I'm frank, much of it is simply a desire for vengeance and seeing people suffer. One example of this, of course, is cancel culture. A whole person's life and career can be ruined based upon some foolish, irresponsible thing they said 25 years ago or something they did 25 years ago. If you judged me now based upon an event when I was 16 and canceled everything about my life because of that, that's not justice. That's vengeance. That's vengeance. People are literally out to ruin other people's lives, and the internet has made this so explosive. There is an obsession with justice and retribution and people answering for their sins and getting back at people. And don't get me wrong, we should want to live as Christians in a more just society, but I don't think that's what's happening in our nation. I think part of the reason for this is due to a rising generation who has no concept or understanding of divine justice. See, one of the reasons Paul Paul calls us to not take vengeance is because there is a divine judge who has and who will uphold justice. This is what he says in Romans 12, 17-21, Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's all. That includes the evil person. That includes a corrupt government. So far as it depends upon you, Christian, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, here's what Paul's arguing. Belief in divine justice restrains a man from taking justice into his own hands. Remember, David didn't take vengeance against Saul because he entrusted the whole situation to God's justice. But if you don't believe that there is a God who will ultimately bring about justice, then where do you turn to find justice? 
either mankind or yourself. And mankind's justice will never satisfy. You see, as Christians, we should be passionate about justice. We should strive to live just lives and desire a more just society. But the anthem of our hearts, the anthem of our hearts, more than justice, should be that of mercy. Especially towards those who have wronged us. See, what our unjust society needs to see are Christians who, yes, are committed to justice, but who through their lives display mercy and compassion on a regular to those who don't deserve such mercy and compassion. I remember Tim Keller telling a a story of a young woman who was um, in the business corporate world in, in New York City and started coming to uh, his church. And he met her and asked her, you know, what led her to start coming to the church. And, and she told this story about how she was in a work situation and she totally failed in the task that she was supposed to be given. And, you know, the corporate world in New York, it's dog-eat-dog kind of world, right? And um, her boss, what she didn't know was a Christian, saw that she failed and totally messed up. And, um, and so he said to her, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. And she was utterly shocked by those words because she had been in the corporate world. There's not that kind of mentality in the corporate world. It's, it's no, I'm going to do what I can to get ahead in front of you. I'll, I'll even throw you to the side. So she went to her boss and said, why did you do that? Why did you cover me like that? He said, what do you mean? He's like, that, that's just, she said, no, no one ever does that in this, in this atmosphere. And he said, well, I'm a Christian and I I believe in showing mercy. That alone was enough for her to start seeking Jesus. And the Lord saved her. It was simply an act of mercy that caused her to go, what is going on here? Who is this man that he would show me such mercy? You see, if the disposition of your heart is always one of justice and not mercy in regards to the one who has wronged you. I think your life doesn't reflect the teachings of Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, nor does it reflect the life of Christ himself. Jesus himself lived according to the truth of this teaching, and he calls his disciples to this same great calling. When Judas and the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, there was no resistance on the part of Jesus against the one who was evil, against his own friend who betrayed him. And when one of his disciples took out a sword to resist the evildoer, Jesus told him to put his sword away, for those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And when Jesus was hanging upon the cross, suffering unjustly at the hands of wicked men, what did he cry out? Did he cry out for justice? For vengeance? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. As the Apostle Peter put it in 1 Peter 2, 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is the righteousness that Jesus calls us to. This is the way of life 
he calls us to. And the only reason why any of us here this morning are followers of Jesus was because of his mercy towards us. He died in our place. He bore God's judgment so that you and I could receive mercy. I want you to think about this. How many sins do you and I commit on a weekly or daily basis both intentionally and unintentionally against the Lord that we're not even aware of, which the Lord has mercy for. Brothers and sisters, what our society needs is to see a community of believers who have mercy for one another. And what the church of Jesus Christ needs is a people who will follow in the way of their Savior. A people who are willing to be wrong rather than to seek vengeance against the one who has wrong. A people who believes, as James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. May God help us to be that kind of people, walking and reflecting our Savior who did not resist the evil person. Let's pray. Father, we simply acknowledge that we need your help. Our hearts are so easily inclined to want to get back at those who have hurt us. And so give us the mercy and compassion of our Savior who when crucified on a cross before the crowds, hearing their mocking and their snarling, could genuinely cry out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Give us that kind of heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.